Hey, welcome to Kurt Vonnegut Radio. This is Gabe Hudson, and this is my podcast. And the title of today's episode is George Saunders and the Nature of His Genius. Now, if you're interested in finding out about the previous episode that I did about George Saunders a, a month ago or so, you can go over to Substack and look for Kurt Vonnegut Radio. You'll find the podcast and the blog there and the newsletter for this show. So if you're not subscribed, go over to Substack, Kurt Vonnegut Radio. Anyway, for those of you who do know, I talked about how George, when I was in the MFA program at Brown University, he came as a visiting professor for a little under a week at the invitation of Ben Marcus. And I had a private conference with George about my work at that time. and. He told me about this concept of the heart being in conflict with itself and that that was Faulkner's old chestnut and that he really subscribed to it. And when George told me about this, it was a revelation times a million. It totally rocked me. And changed the way that I wrote, changed the way I thought about writing. And I've spent the last couple decades studying this concept, trying to put it into play in my own work and looking at it in other narratives, whether that be film, shows, books, audio, any form of narrative or story. I'm always looking for the heart being in conflict with itself. And it's something I've also taught. I've taught it at Princeton University. I taught it at Columbia University. I taught it at Brown University. I taught it at Yonsei University in Seoul. I always make sure that no student I work with walks away without me having given them every opportunity to understand the heart being in conflict with itself. Now, after that episode in the past weeks, I've got a lot of like notes, emails, pings from people saying, hey, I love that episode and I love this concept and I think I understand it, but I'm not totally sure. So could you do an episode where you offer clarification on the heart being in conflict with itself, how that works? And of course... I'm happy to do that, and I'm happy to talk more about my writing hero, George Saunders, and his writing mantra, the heart is in conflict with itself. Now, George, as you know from my previous episode, he's always quick to credit William Faulkner for having come up with this narrative strategy. So what we're going to do today so I'm going to go into one of George's early masterpieces, a short story called The Wave Maker Falters. It's from his debut book, Civil War Land and Bad Decline. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to pop the hood on this masterpiece short story of George's. And we're going to look around, get our hands dirty. And I'm going to show you how the heart being in conflict with itself is the secret engine that powers the story. So I'm going to read George's story, The Wavemaker Falters, to you. And I will occasionally pause to comment or annotate. 
for what it's worth, if you haven't read this story before, then I am seriously jealous because it's a banger. Elegant, cheerfully deranged, and shot through with all kinds of newfangled pathos. A real heartbender. So my goal today is to make you aware of how George's protagonist's heart is in conflict with itself. And for you to understand how the character must be torn by two contradictory impulses. And how we must feel the character's emotional struggle. And how the story becomes a living, breathing thing because of that. And once you understand, and you can see this concept in another work of narrative art, perhaps it'll be of use to you in your own writing. Whether that be in prose fiction, or if you're writing a film, or if you're writing a show, scripts, audio scripts, telling stories. This is the most important thing that anybody who is interested in storytelling could ever hope to know or understand. And after you learn this, you'll be able to see how a character's heart is in conflict with itself wherever that happens and in real life. Because in the best narrative, the protagonist's heart will always be in conflict with itself. Because the heart being in conflict with itself is the fundamental human condition. We all exist in that state all the time, knowingly or unknowingly. Now, let me put a pin in that for just a second. Do a quick sidebar. I want to say heartfelt thank you to my most recent paid subscribers over on Substack for their encouragement and support. Those individuals are Rebecca L.W., Catherine Texier, Shishwan, Lisa G., Jeffrey Streeter, and John Glassy. I am ride or die with all of you. I'm also happy to report that what we're doing over here on Kurt Vonnegut Radio is starting to get some notice and that we got a nice little write-up this week in book form. And I will quote from what book form wrote, but what they're referencing is my interview with novelist and short story writer Akhil Sharma from last week. This is what book form writes. Author Gabe Hudson devotes the latest episode of his podcast, Kurt Vonnegut Radio, to novelist Akhil Sharma, author of Family Life. The two are friends, and the episode opens with them talking about the ways that Hudson has helped Sharma. Quote, I don't have, like, great boundaries, Hudson says, because I wasn't raised in an environment where anybody had any boundaries. And so I'm, like, very emotionally available, and I care a lot which I think some people could call my one fault, end quote. The two go on to talk about how tragedy and shame shaped Sharma's life and writing and why Sharma reads Tolstoy backwards. So anyway, I appreciate that book for him. Thank you for the shout out. 
Now let's get back to the main production. Let's get into George George Saunders' story, The Wavemaker Falters. Oh, and just to give you a little heads up, there is some violence in this story. And to set the stage a little bit, the narrator of the story works at a water park that has a historical reenactment component to it. Kind of like Epcot Center or Disney World, but on acid. It's a dystopic story that was published in the 90s, but it reads like it's happening in 2023. So if you want to see why I love the short story and why I believe it's the most potent form of prose fiction and why I think we should rebrand short stories and start calling them big stories, well, buckle up because we're about to dive into one of George Saunders' timeless wonders, The Wave Maker Falters. Halfway up the mountain, it's the center for wayward nuns, full of sisters and other religious personnel who have become doubtful. Once, a few of them came down to our facility in stern suits and swam cautiously. The singing from up there never exactly knocks your socks off. It's very conditional singing, probably because all of the doubt. A young nun named Sister Viv came unglued there last fall. So we gave her a free pass to come down and meditate near our simulated Spanish trout stream. The head nun said Viv was from Idaho, and sure enough, the stream seemed to have a calming effect. One day she's sitting cross-legged a few feet away from a dumpster housed in a granite boulder, made of resilient synthetic material. Ned, Tony, and Gerald, as usual, are dressed as Bosques. In orientation, they learned a limited amount of actual Bosque so that they can lapse into it whenever guests are within earshot. Sister Viv's a regular, so they don't even bother. I look over to say something supportive and optimistic to her, and then I think, oh, geez, not another patron death on my hands. She's going downstream fast, and her habit's ballooning up. The fake bosks are standing there in a row with their mouths open. So I dive in and drag her out. It's not very deep, and the bottom's rubber matted. None of the bosks are bright enough to switch off the leaping trout subroutine, however. So twice, I get scraped with little fiberglass fins. Finally, I get her out of the pine needles, and she comes too, and spits in my face and says, I couldn't possibly know the darkness of her heart. Try me, I say. She crawls away and starts bashing her skull against a tree trunk. The trees are synthetic too, but still. A week later, she runs amuck in the nun eating hall and stabs a cafeteria worker to death. So the upshot of it all is more guilt for me, Mr. Guilt. There's a space break, and then this is the next bit of text. Once a night, Simone puts on the mermaid tail and lip syncs on a raft in the wave pool while I play spotlights over her and broadcast, button up your overcoat. Tonight, as I'm working, the lights, I watch Leon, subquadrant manager, watch Simone. As he watches her, his wet mouth keeps moving. Every time I accidentally light up the chlorine shed, the guests start yelling at me. Finally. I stop watching Leon watch her and try to concentrate on getting writ- not written up for crappy showmanship. I can't stand Leon. 
On the wall of his office, he's got a picture of himself jello wrestling, a traveling celebrity jello wrestler. That's pure Leon. Plus, he had her autograph it. First, he tried to talk her into dipping her breasts in ink and doing an imprint, but she said, No way. My point is, even traveling celebrity jello wrestlers have more class than Leon. He follows us into costuming and chats Simone up while helping her pack away her tail. Do I tell him to get lost? No. Do I knock him into a planter to remind him just whose wife Simone is? No. I go out and wait for her by loco log jam. I sit on a turnstile. So that's the first explicit evidence of the protagonist's heart being in conflict with itself. On some level, he clearly thinks that he should be more of an alpha kind of meathead guy that would be physical and possessive, etc., etc. And you even hear him ask the question, do I tell him to get lost? No. Do I knock him into a planter to remind him just whose wife Simone is? No. His heart is in conflict with itself. He wants to be doing one thing, but he does the other. Finally, Simone's ready and we walk over to employee underground parking. Bald Murray logs us out while trying to look down Simone's blouse. On the side of the road, there's a woman sitting in a shopping cart wearing a grubby t-shirt. For old time's sake, I put my hand in Simone's lap. Promises, promises, she says. At the road cut by the self-storage, she makes me stop so we can view all the interesting stratification. She's never liked geology before. Leon takes geology at the community college and is always pointing out what's glacial till and what's not. So I suspect there's a connection. We get into a little fight about him, and she admires her, his self-confidence to my face. I ask her, is that some kind of put-down? She's only saying, she says, that in her book, a little boldness goes a long way. She asks if I remember the time Leon chased off the frat boy who kept trying to detach her mermaid hairpiece. Where was I? Why didn't I step in? Is she my girl or what? I remind her that I was busy at the controls. It gets very awkward and quiet. Me at the controls is a sore subject. Nothing's gone right for us since the day I crushed the boy with the wave maker. I haven't been able to forget his little white trunk floating out of the inlet port, all bloody. Who checks protective screen mounting screws these days? Not me. Leon does when he wave makes, of course. It's in the protocol. That's how he got to be sub-quadrant manager. Attention to detail. Leon's been rising steadily since we went through orientation together. And all told, he saved three guests. And I've crushed the shit out of one. The little boy I crushed was named Clive. By all accounts, he was a sweet kid. Sometimes at night, I sneak over there to do chores in secret and pray for forgiveness at his window. I've changed his dad's oil and painted all their window frames and taken the burrs off their Labrador. If anybody comes out while I'm working, I hide in the shrubs. The sister who wears cat eye glasses, even in this day and age, thinks it's Clive's soul doing the mystery errands. And lately, she's been leaving him notes. Simone says I'm not doing them any big favor by driving their daughter nuts. 
but I can't help it. I feel so bad. We pull up to our unit and I see that once again the Peretti twins have drawn squash boys all over our windows with soap. Their dad's a bruiser. No way I'm forcing a confrontation. In the driveway, Simone asks, Did I do my resume at lunch? No, I told her. I had a serious pH difficulty. Fine, she says. Make wave the rest of your life. The day it happened, an attractive all-girl glee club was lined around on the concrete in Cowabunga Cove in day-glow suits, looking for all the world like a bunch of blooms. The president and sergeant-at-arms were standing with brown ankles in the shallow, favorably comparing my attraction to real surf. To increase my appeal, I had the sea chanties blaring. I was operating at the prescribed wave frequency setting, but in my lust for the glee club, had the magnitude pegged. Leon came by and told me to turn the music down, so I turned it up. Consequently, I never heard Clive screaming or Leon shouting at me to kill the waves. My first clue was looking out the control hut portal and seeing people bolting toward the ladders, choking and with bits of Clive all over them. Guests were weeping while wiping their torsos on the lawn. Leon hates to say he told me so, but he does it all the time anyway. He constantly reminds me of how guilty I am by telling me not to feel guilty and asking about my counseling. My counselor is Mr. Poppet, a gracious and devout man who's always tightening his butt cheeks when he thinks no one's looking. Mr. Poppet makes me sit with my eyes closed and repeat, a boy is dead because of me for half an hour for $50. Then for another $50, he makes me sit with my eyes closed again and repeat, Still, I'm a person of considerable value for half an hour. The sessions have done me good. Clive doesn't come into my room at night all hacked up anymore. He comes in pretty much whole. He comes in and sits down on my bed and starts talking to me. Since he's death, he's been hanging around with dead kids from other eras. One night he showed up swearing in Latin. He tries to be polite, but he's pretty mad about the future I denied him. Tonight's subject is that Mexico City trip with the perky red-haired tramp and how that would have been for him. He dwells on the details of their dinner in the catacombs and describes how her freckles would have looked as daylight streamed in through the cigarette-burned magenta curtains. Forgive me, I say, in tears. No, he says, also in tears. Near dawn, he sighs, tucks in the parts of his body that have been gradually leaking out over the course of the night, pats my neck with his cold little palm, and tells me to have a nice day. Then he fades, producing farts with a wet hand under his armpit. Meanwhile, Simone sleeps through the whole thing, making little puppy sounds and pushing her rear against my front to remind me, even in her sleep, of how long it's been. But you try it. You kill a nice little kid via neglect and then enjoy having sex. If you can do it, you're demented. Simone's an innocent victim. Sometimes I think I should give her her space and let her explore various avenues so her personal development won't get stymied. But I could never let her go. I loved her too long. We once dedicated a whole night to pretending I was a household invader who tied her up. In my shorts, I stood outside the sliding glass door shouting, Meter Man, 
At dawn or so, I made us eggs, but was so high on her, I ruined our only pan by leaving it on the burner while I kept running back and forth to look at her nude. What I'm saying is, we go way back. I hope she'll wait this thing out. If only Clive would resume living and start dating some nice-smelling cheerleader who has no idea who Benny Goodman is. Then I'd regain my strength and win her back. But no. Instead, I wake at night and Simone's either looking over at me with hatred or whisking her privates with her index finger while thinking of God knows who, although I doubt very much it's me. At noon the next day, a muscle man shows up with four beehives on a dolly. This is Leon's stroke of genius for the Kuiper wedding. The Kuipers are the natural type. They don't want to eat anything that ever lived or buy any product that even vaguely supports notorious third world regimes. At 10, Leon arrives, proudly bearing a large shrimp-shaped serving vat full of bagels coated with fresh honey. Over the weekend, he studied honey extraction techniques at the local library. He puts down the vat and takes off the lid. Just then, the bride's grandmother falls out of her chair and rolls down the bank. She stops face up at the water's edge and her wig tips back. I look around. I'm the nearest host. According to the manual, I'm supposed to initiate CPR or face a stiff payroll reduction. The week I took the class, the dummy was on the fritz, of course. So I straddle her and timidly start chest pumping. I can feel her breast, her bra clasp under the heel of my hand. Nothing happens. I keep waiting for her to throw up on me or come to life. Then Leon vaults over the shrimp-shaped vat, he shoos me away, checks her pulse, and begins the Heimlich maneuver. When your victim is elderly, he says loudly and remonstratively, it's natural to assume heart attack. Natural, but in this case, possibly deadly. After a few more minutes of Heimlich, he takes a pen from his pocket and drives it into her throat. Almost immediately, she sits up and readjusts her wig, with the pen sticking out. Leon kisses her forehead and makes her lie back down, then gives the thumbs up. The crowd bursts into applause. I sneak off and sit for about an hour on the floor of the control hut. I keep hoping it'll blow up or a nuclear war will start, so I'll die. But I don't die, so I go over and pick up my wife. Leon wants to terminate me, but Simone has a serious chat with him about our mortgage, and he lets me stay on in towel distribution. It's a relief, really. Nobody can get hurt. The worst that could happen is maybe a yeast infection. It's a relief until I go to his office one day with the usage statistics and hear moans from inside and hide behind a soda machine until Simone comes out looking flushed and happy. I want to jump out and confront her, but I don't. Then Leon comes out, and I want to jump out and confront him, but I don't. What I do is wait behind the soda machine until they leave. Then I climb out a window and hitchhike home. I get a ride from a guy who sells and services Zambonis. He tells me to confront her forcefully and watch her fall to pieces. If she doesn't fall to pieces, I should beat her. When I get home, I confront her forcefully. She doesn't fall to pieces. Not only does she not deny it, she says it's going to continue, no matter what. She says, I've been absent too long. 
She says there's more to Leon than meets the eye. I think of beating her, and my heart breaks, and I give up on everything. Clive shows up at 10, and he keeps me awake telling me what a senior prom would have been like. Simone calls Leon's name in her sleep and mutters something about his desk calendar, leaving a paper cut on her neck. Clive follows me into the kitchen, wanting to know what a nosegay is. Outside, all the cornfield is bent over and blowing. The moon comes up over delectable videos like a fat man withdrawing himself from a lake. I fall asleep at the counter. The phone rings at three. It's Clive's father, saying he's finally shaken himself from his stupor and is coming over to kill me. I tell him I'll leave the door open. Clive's been in the bathroom, imagining himself some zits. Even though he's one of the undead, I have a lot of affection for him. When he comes out, I tell him he'll have to go, and that I'll see him tomorrow. He whines a bit, but finally fades away. His dad pulls up in a Land Cruiser and gets out with a big gun. He comes through the door in an alert posture and sees me sitting on the couch. I can tell he's been drinking. I don't hate you, he says, but I can't have you living on this earth while my son isn't. I understand, I say. Looking sheepish, he steps over and puts the gun to my head. The sound of our home's internal ventilation system is suddenly wondrous. The mole on his neck possesses grace. Children would have been nice. I close my eyes and wait. Then I urinate myself. Then I wait some more. Then I open my eyes. He's gone and the front door's wide open. Jesus, I think. Embarrassing. I wet myself and was ready to die. Then I go for a brisk walk. I hike into the hills and sit in a graveyard. The stars are blinking like cat's eyes and burned blood is pouring out at the slaughterhouse chimney. My crotch is cold with the pee and the breeze. The moon goes behind a cloud, and six pale forms start down from the foothills. At first I think they're ghosts, but they're only starving pronghorn come down to lick salt from the headstones. I sit there trying to write Simone off. No more guys ogling her in public, and no more dippy theories on world hunger. Then I think of her and Leon watching the test pattern together, nude and sweaty, and I moan and double over with dread and a doe bolts away in alarm. A storm rolls in over the hills, and a brochure describing a portrait offer gets plastered across my chest. Lightning strikes the slaughterhouse flagpole, and the antelopes scatter like minnows as the rain begins to fall. And finally, having lost what was to be lost, my torn and black heart rebels, saying, Enough already, enough. This is as low as I go. And that, my friends, is an amazing short story. Again, by George Saunders from his first book, Civil War Land and Bad Decline. I hope it was very clear to you the moments where our character's heart was in conflict with itself and how you never knew what he was going to do because his heart was in conflict with itself. That's the beauty of writing this kind of character with their heart being in conflict with itself. You, the writer, 
Do not intervene in the narrative. You do not shoehorn some events onto this character's life. You watch and it's very exciting because at a certain point, it's like the character's live and just doing stuff and their actions will surprise you, but you will instantly recognize the truth of what they're doing. And that's one of the most powerful and wonderful feelings that you can have as a writer. You're not even really writing, even though technically you are. And you're certainly not trying to control things. You are giving this character the latitude to be guided by their heart. And if you want to think about the heart being in conflict with itself, um, like if you go sailing, you know, the sail, if you don't want a sailboat, like the sails got attacked back and forth and you move it back and forth based on where you want to go. So if you think of a character's heart being in conflict with itself as the sail that's sort of tacking back and forth in either direction, um, that might be like a, a visual thing that might be able to help you latch onto this idea of the heart being in conflict with itself. So... Anyway, if you want to come say hi online, you can find me on Twitter at Gabe Hudson. I'm also on Blue Sky at Gabe Hudson. Or if you want to come say hi on Instagram or threads, I'm at Gabe G. Hudson. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast and the newsletter over at Substack, you should go over and do that. And if you want to become a paid subscriber to the podcast, we will really appreciate it. The podcast and the newsletter will always be free. It is for the people. But without paying subscribers or without my paying subscribers, I won't be able to continue to do the project. So if you're in a position to contribute to the podcast, then you make the podcast not only available to you, but you make it available to everyone else too. And if you can't do that, you can always go over to the Apple podcast app or the Spotify app and rate our show, Kurt Hit, give it a five-star rating and write a review for it. It's a great help for the show. When you do that, the more reviews it has, the more the algorithm treats it differently and starts to show the show to other people so that they can discover the show and so that they can enjoy it. So when you go and write a review and put a five-star up there, you are doing a great help for the show. Stay safe out there, people, and I'll see you back here for the next episode. Peace.